Thanks so much. Um, I really appreciate being asked to come down here and speak near the border. I'm always really happy to be down here. And of course, we saw the Border Patrol checkpoint on the way and all the signs of things happening down here. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Mary Longbottom for inviting me. I'm sorry to hear that her father just died. Um, and thanks to Richard for facilitating and my two tech guys, <laughs> Dave Weigel and uh, Gary Rulapaw. Is that how we say that? Yeah. So thanks all for your help. Um, I'm going to start by reading to you the introduction from my new book, Detained and Deported. As the title gives you some clue, it's about sort of both prongs of what happens in immigration today. You know, we have the detention centers, which have been getting a lot of attention lately. And then, of course, you're very familiar with the deportation and the people being dropped off across the border. So... <coughs> The arrow keys? Here we go. Okay. So uh, the book starts out with a scene in the Eloy Detention Center. Has anybody ever been up there? There was just a big protest up there last weekend. I read that um, a lot of people went up there and they held lights in the night outside on the road. And, of course, the police kept them a good distance away. But they saw that the prisoners inside were responding by turning their lights off and on in their cells. So that must have been a very moving thing. Yolanda Fontes sat in her prison scrubs and watched the families gather all around her. Husbands were reconnecting with wives, sisters with sisters, mothers with children. It was a sunny Sunday in April, and the families had flocked to the Eloy Detention Center, a dreary for-profit immigration prison in rural Arizona, to visit their detained loved ones. A female prisoner sat with her small son on her lap, her arms wrapped tightly around him, as if she were imagining never letting him go. The aunt who had brought the little boy spoke sorrowfully to her sister as the child snuggled in his mother's embrace. Nearby, an imprisoned father sat across a table from his wife, clutching her hand. They were trying to talk, but their four-year-old daughter, hungry and tired, fussed on the floor below. None of the families in the packed room had any privacy. An impassive guard presided over their melancholy reunions, keeping a close watch on the mothers and fathers dressed in jailbird scrubs. The visiting room was bleak and windowless, lit by glaring prison lights. It was a beautiful spring day outside, but no rays of sunlight pierced its cinder block walls. Okay. Alone among the detainees in this stark space, Yolanda had no family visiting, just me, a writer who had come to hear her story. She was glad to be out of her prison unit, and she was full of smiles, determined to be cheerful. Yet her tale was grim, and she looked at the other detainees' kids wistfully as she recounted it. During the two years she'd spent locked up in Eloy, she'd seen her two little girls and her little boy only sporadically. The children, all American citizens, lived in a distant suburb northwest of Phoenix. 
They came to visit their mom only when a relative or friend could spare the time to drive the 200-mile round trip to Eloy. The last time Yolanda had seen them was two months before. I don't have a picture of Yolanda. I wasn't allowed to bring any cameras in there. Yolanda was 32. She'd slipped into Arizona from Mexico some 17 years before when she was just 15. She spoke flawless English, and even though she had no papers, she'd almost never had any difficulty finding a job. And until two years ago, she'd never had any troubles with immigration either. But the father of her two younger children regularly beat her, and one attack triggered a series of disasters that land, eventually landed her in jail and now detention. The abuse of X had the two kids, and Yolanda was facing deportation. She could have accepted removal to Mexico right away and gotten out of Eloy, but if she were deported, she would lose the children. So she stayed in the prison month after month, fighting her case, hoping to persuade a judge to overturn the deportation order, praying to get back to her daughters and her son. Yolanda's spirits flagged just once during the two hours we visited. The last time the kids came to see her, she said, her five-year-old, little V, looked at her suspiciously. He told me I didn't look like his mother, she said, her eyes filling with tears. Her own child was starting to forget her. Down in Nogales, on the Mexican side of the border, Gustavo Sanchez Perez was just as worried about his kids. He was a 25-year-old landscaper from Phoenix. I met him early one hot July morning at a Catholic comedor, just steps from the international line. He was one of 60 deportees eating a hearty breakfast of beans and rice in a humble dining hall run by an order of Mexican nuns. Like Yolanda, Gustavo had moved with his family from Mexico to the United States as a child. Born in Veracruz, he'd come to Phoenix at the age of eight and lived there ever since. He spoke perfect English. He and his wife had two small children, a boy of four and a baby girl, both of them U.S. citizens. Gustavo had been arrested in Phoenix for riding his bicycle at night without a light and then detained by ICE. He'd rotated through several detention centers in Arizona and in Colorado before being tossed back over the border and into Nogales. He'd always worked hard to support his children. What was their mother doing now, he wondered, without his wages coming in? He was staying in a shelter, but he would have to leave soon. Nogales was reeling under a deluge of deportees from the United States, and the town's shelters didn't have the resources to house los deportados longer than three days. Gustavo would have to move on. His mother in Phoenix had advised him to go back to Veracruz, but he had no, had no intention of returning to a place where everyone was a stranger. He knew where he needed to be, with his children, at home, in Phoenix. The way to get back to them lay over the border and through the Arizona desert, but the journey would be perilous in more ways than one. He could die out there in the heat, as so many had done before him. And if he made it in, if he made it through, he ran the risk of arrest. If they catch me, he said, 
I get 10 years in jail. So that's kind of, <laughs> you know, both very uh, difficult and tragic stories, you know, emblematic of the stories of the hundreds of thousands who get caught up in this kind of immigration dragnet that we have. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit how I came to this story. I think we just have 20 minutes today. Is that right? Go as long as you want. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Um, some of you may know, uh, six years ago now, my book, The Death of Joseline, came out. Um, this is little Joseline. She was a 14-year-old girl from El Salvador who died right here in our Arizona deserts in 2008. Um, this is a picture of her when she was back home. Her mother and father, like so many immigrants, had left her and her brother behind to go to the United States and support the family. And it is said that it, when she was left behind in El Salvador, she became a little mother to her little brother. And I always like this picture of her that she kind of looks like a kid with a lot of responsibilities to me. Um, her mother, Sonia, was living in L.A. She finally saved enough money from whatever minimum wage or less job she held out there and paid for the two kids to be brought up from El Salvador by a coyote. She thought she was sending the kids with people that she knew. I mean, she knew them and she trusted them. She thought the children would be safe. And they came all the way up through Mexico, which is a grueling journey in and of itself, they crossed the border at Sasabi in January of 2008. It happened to be a cold and wet winter. And before long, Joseline fell ill. They believe that she drank some contaminated water in a cow tank. There's a lot of those. Well, you guys know that down here in ranch country. There are these water tanks all over the place down near um, Sasabe. And, you know, the cows can drink that water, but they're poisonous for human beings. And she became very ill on the trail. Um, she couldn't walk anymore, and the coyote decided to leave her there in the winter, a 14-year-old girl who was sick, and that's what he did. I mean, you know, the coyotes have a whole group of people. They have their ride to catch on the road. They have a schedule to keep. They sort of have to look at the good of the whole, I suppose, um, and they left Joseline behind in the mountains, and her little brother cried and screamed, but they brought him it took three days for uh, any alarm to be raised when the little boy got to L.A. and alerted his mother that they had left Joseline behind in the desert. Um, and people went out and sought, for, sought her. A lot of you know, good-hearted people in Tucson especially, um, they do this humanitarian work of trying to find lost migrants. But it wasn't until three weeks later that a young man from No More Deaths found her body up there in um, Copper County, or... Uh, Oh, I forget the name of the canyon. It's not Copper Canyon. One of the canyons down in the Tumacacari Wilderness. So, you know, I told uh, Jocelyn's story in my book about all the deaths of the desert because her story was so tragic and, and summoned up, you know, kind of all the worst things in our immigration crisis, you know, the separation of families, the dangers of crossing the border, um, the behavior of coyotes, who are, you know, a lot of them are criminal agents. I heard a lot of stories about coyotes who were nice people and tried to help them, but a lot of them are, you know, many people tell this story of being left behind when they have trouble in the desert. And, you know, that was a very tragic story, but we knew about Joseline because her body was found, and I was able to get the information and tell it. 
But, you know, the year she died, there were something like 188 other people whose bodies were found in the Arizona desert. Um, and just, you know, last, last week, the numbers came out for the most recent year in Arizona. Um, you know, it's a fiscal year, October 1st to September 30th. Our deaths are way up again. They, they dropped for a few years this year. And we always have to say bodies found rather than deaths because you guys know out here in this desert, if a body is left behind, it doesn't really last very long. And often when they say they have found a body, they mean they've found a femur or, you know, an arm bone. Um, so we've, this past year, there were 144 bodies found. Year, last year, it was 133. year before that, it was 121. So for whatever reason, the bodies are going up again. And with the new uh, total for this past fiscal year, according to documents in the uh, Pima County Medical Examiner's Office, they're the ones who get all the migrant bodies to do autopsies. It, since the year 2000 up to the end of September, we have 3,047 bodies found just in southern Arizona. And that doesn't address Texas, where the bodies are being found in new great numbers. I'm sure you've read about this with the Central American migration into Texas. That's, you know, in a running race with Arizona for the most deaths. And it doesn't include the deaths in California. So I'll just leave that number with you one more time. 3,047 bodies found just in Arizona. And I'm sure this is not a figure you've heard anything about in the... Uh, all the presidential debates about immigration, it's something that's almost never discussed. Um, I came into my new book, you know, after I did that book, sort of the last story I wrote about in the death of Jocelyn brought me to thinking about the detention centers. These are three very fine young people from uh, Tucson, Marlene, Omar, and Araceli. They uh, were all high school graduates. They had all been brought to... Arizona by their families as children from Mexico. These were three great young people. Um, Omar had been going to college at Pima College and dropped out when his father was badly um, injured in an accident and never able to work again. And Omar was the oldest in a family. I think it was seven children. He dropped out of college to support his mother and his brothers and sisters, and he went to work at Panda Express, where he did very well and was promoted to assistant manager. Uh, Marlene, uh, also a high school graduate, um, was very proud of that fact. First one in her family, uh, worked at movie theaters, and um, finally got this job at Panda Express. And Araceli, likewise, turned out when I interviewed Araceli, she had gone to the same elementary school in Tucson as our daughter, Linda. And she pulled out her yearbook from my daughter's third third grade at Cragen Elementary in Linda, and there was my daughter, and there was Araceli in the same yearbook. That really was really amazing for me to see that, um, how long these kids had been in this country and how much they felt like part of things. They all were arrested. Um, the way, you know, they were undocumented. They'd been here for a long time. The way they got, the government got clued into their undocumented status was, Marlene, in all her years of working at Panda Express, was making so little money that she applied for food aid for her baby. She had an eight-month-old baby, Freddie. And not knowing much about the structures of government, she used the same fake Social Security number 
to apply for food aid from the Department of Economic Security in Arizona that she had used to get the job at Panda Express. Most of, they all had fake um, Social Security numbers, and several of them told me Panda Express would give them the numbers. <laughs> Interestingly, so the fact that Marlene used this number with a state thing triggered a massive state investigation, and I got the stack of papers from her attorney later on this many papers to investigate this young woman making a minimum wage at a fast food joint in Tucson. And they decided, and they contacted Panda Express, and Panda Express was shocked, totally shocked to learn that 12 out of their 14 employees at the Panda Express at Grant in Swan were undocumented and said they had certainly had no idea, and they cooperated fully with the government so the morning of March 18th that year, I remember because it was the day after St. Patrick's Day, which is a big holiday in my family. We always celebrate our Irish immigration status, and everybody loves the Irish now, and we can't stand the immigrants that we have now. But as you probably know, immigrants in the United States have always had a very rough time. So it was the day after that, March 18th, uh, Marlene was at home in bed in her trailer in South Tucson. The baby had a cold. She had him in bed with her. Knock, 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 loud, loud banging at the door very early in the morning. She goes to the door. A whole platoon of Department of Economic, no, uh, DPS, Department of Public Safety, the same guys that patrol the highways and that also have major investigations of drug dealers, were at her door, a whole platoon of them there to arrest her. And the baby's crying. You know, they came in. I, she told me all this later. Um, they said, you know, she couldn't even get dressed. She had her pajamas on. They said, you know, she wasn't allowed to get dressed because they had to arrest her right away. I mean, her, she was so dangerous. Uh, and she had to hand the crying baby to her little sister. They dragged her out in her pajamas, which was total humiliation for her. And the neighbors are all looking, you know, what's going on? It looked like a drug bust at her house, and her crime basically was working at Panda Express. Later that morning... Um, her friends all arrived at work at 10.30 because Panda Express had told them um, they were having some very important dignitaries visiting that morning. And a lot of them came in early because I think RSLE was one of them. They wanted to wash the windows and having everything look spick and span. So they got there early. The place looked great. First customer walking in at 10.30 was a DPS agent, and it was a raid. They got in front door and back door, back door. 18 officers deployed on this raise to capture the Panda Express employees. Um, it was a big deal in Tucson because unlike Phoenix, we have not seen many of these high-profile raids at one time. Um, but so this, you know, this, so it got a lot of attention. Nine out of the 12, uh, no, 11, eight out of the 11 were deported almost immediately. Um, but these three uh, were sent to the detention centers because they were going to argue their case. Oh, I have to say that, you know, first they have the criminal trial. And because of an amazing attorney in Arizona, Margot Cowan, in Tucson, Margot Cowan, she was able to argue, plea that they were charged with felony identity theft. And so she, she pled it down to misdemeanor, basically pretending to be a Panda Express employee, whatever that means. But so they got misdemeanors, which is crucial for these three young people, because if you get a felony, no matter what it's for, you're never going to be eligible for any kind of immigration relief. But the three of them all were sent to the detention center after they were, you know, 
they got this plea of a they got this sentence or I guess a finding of guilt for uh, pretending to be a Panda Express employee. And then they were all in the detention centers for quite a while. And when they finally got out, five months later, some groups in Tucson had posted bonds for them. I went to see Marlan at her trailer in South Tucson. Her little boy, Freddie, no longer knew her. He was only eight months when she was taken away, and he was scared of her. He was sitting in his grandmother's lap at the kitchen table and looking at his mother like this. And, you know, here's his mom coming out of five months in prison and detention. She said it was so totally humiliating to be put in a detention center, first in a prison and then a detention center. She had always felt like such a good, hardworking person. She had contributed so much. Omar told me he couldn't stand the confinement. He was an athletic young guy. He'd been a soccer star at his high school in Tucson. And what Marlene said to me is, you know, they treated us like criminals. They treated us badly. But the worst part of it all was being separated from our children. And she said, I won't forget that. So that's when I really started to think about looking at the detention centers. see it. Um, you know, Ellis Island, we always think of it so fondly, you know, and there's always these movies, it's always pictured in sepia, and our, our immigrant ancestors came through Ellis Island, but, you know, Ellis Island was a detention and deportation center. I mean, it wasn't, you know, at that time, we needed that labor coming in, and we were welcoming those people by and large, but it was a detention center, and it was also a deportation center. It ran for 62 years, from 1892 to 1954. In 1954, the old Immigration and Naturalization Service decided to shut it down. They thought that that's not the way we should be doing things in the United States, putting people into detention. And I found this wonderful comment from a Supreme Court justice at the time, 1958, Justice Tom C. Clark, if anybody's, anybody remembers that name. Um, he, in another case, he was applauding you know, this... Uh, evolution in the nation's moral development. He said, physical detention of aliens is now the exception. Certainly this policy reflects human qualities of an enlightened civilization. So that, uh, that enlightenment lasted just 22 years. <laughs> Who remembers the Marielitos in 1981? We had 125,000 Cubans in flimsy boats arriving on the shores of Florida. Uh, you know, it was a complete crisis. Um, 1980, I should say, the last year of the Carter administration. And you'll remember all the, the talk about it at that time that they were criminals and mental patients. And so Jimmy Carter, you know, humanitarian president, um, he put them into detention centers. He put them into makeshift detention centers. Now, admittedly, many of them were processed through very quickly, but as far as I could find, you know, researching this into the past, five years later, there were still 5,000 marielitos being held in a federal prison in Atlanta without trial. Um, so, okay, so Carter gets out, and the next year, 1981, we had the Haitian boat people. It's a very easy transition there. Now we had President Reagan in, and he... He defined them as economic migrants, not refugees fleeing the situation in Haiti, which is what a lot of people, a lot of scholars believe they were. He deported some, and he put a lot of them, again, into these makeshift detention centers. And importantly, 
he changed the policy. The INS published new rules that now detention would be the norm and not the exception. And then our friends, the private prison centers, got busy. <laughs> private prison corporations, by 1983, Corrections Corporation of America, which owns Eloy and lots of other ones, they incorporated their first contract was with uh, ICE um, to do a detention center in Texas. And, you know, from then on, really, the race was on. Here's uh, Eloy Detention Center, which... Uh, you may know is the third largest in the United States. It houses about 1,600 people. It's the only one in Arizona that houses women. Um, it's it's often criticized. I was just writing about it recently. You know, they've had more deaths and more suicides than any other um, detention centers in the United States. They don't really comply with the ICE rules in the way that they're supposed to. And in my book, you know, I had opportunities to visit Eloy a number of times, and I interviewed many people who had been in there. They talk about um, the harshness of the treatment. The, they use solitary confinement for punishment. And you have to emphasize again and again and again, detention centers are not supposed to be prisons. They're not supposed to be prisons. They're supposed to be exactly that. You're detaining a person to make sure that they show up at their immigration hearing. They're not supposed to be punitive. But the model for them is certainly very punitive. Um, I just, you know, have some thoughts about this. Uh, you know, here we see these immigrants from Ellis Island and how many people were coming then. You know, to be fair, the United States has had a huge, great migration, much greater than the one that we think about at the time of uh, uh, Ellis Island. For 40 years, you know, between 1980 and 1920, pretty much the heyday of Ellis Island, we had 20 million immigrants. More recently, in 20 years, we've had just as much. So in half the time, we've had 20 million immigrants to the United States. So that's from about 18, or 1990 to 2010. So, I mean, it is a big change for Americans. So we have, you know, here's, and this is how we think of migration today, and this is considered, you know, this is, well, I can't go backwards. That, that was a nice picture of the Ellis Island immigrants, but, you know, these migrants, you know, you have a different response to them. But I, I love those two pictures because they're showing them so similarly with their little belongings coming. But so, you know, then as now, Americans have reacted harshly to this, you know, onslaught of uh, immigrants coming to the country. And by 1986, we had the first big harsh law coming in. Um, it, you know, it's... Reagan put in the Immigration Reform and Control Act. This is 1986. It was the first to define certain crimes as deportable. None of this stuff was on the books before. But interestingly, great quote from Reagan, that was also the thing that gave amnesty to a lot of you know, undocumented immigrants in the United States. And this is President Reagan, the uh, revered conservative president. I believe in the idea of amnesty for those who have put down roots and who have lived here, even though sometime back they may have entered illegally. People who may still be undocumented may lived here for a period of time and put down roots. We want to give them the right to live here legally. So very different rhetoric that you hear today. Um, 19, whoops. Okay, 1996, that's when uh, Clinton lost the Congress, you know, everything went Republican, and then there was the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. This 1996 law is really 
crucial in understanding all the detention centers today and the deportations. It was a very harsh law. It could even, if you were an immigrant who had had legal status, you were a permanent resident, a legal permanent resident. They redefine crimes. Say, as a teenager, you had done a drug crime and you had, you know, served your time or whatever, and you were a citizen. Everything was good now. Those crimes were redefined as felonies for any immigrants. Even if you were here as a legal immigrant, you could be picked up and deported for a crime you had committed years before. So that was very harsh. And then a lot of other crimes were um, defi- uh, required mandatory detention. That's what happened to Yolanda. Um, very complicated story with her, but she was forced into uh, prostitution through coercion and threats to her life and her children's lives. And that was considered a moral uh, Uh, a crime of moral turpitude, and so it required mandatory detention. So a lot of crimes like that were redefined, that you couldn't just wait on the outside for your immigration hearing. You had to be put in detention. Um, So on the heels of all these new laws, the numbers in detention shot up rapidly. In 1994, there were 5,000 immigrants during that year in detention. In 2012, the year I met Yolanda, 477,000. So that's what, you know, 20 years later, okay, you're here at 5,000, you're here at almost 500,000 cycling through the detention centers. Not all at once, obviously. These are just some good inside pictures of the detention center. I did go on a press visit another time with uh, my friend Jay Rocklin, the photographer. Um, These are Guatemalan men who are awaiting their asylum hearing There are many, many Central Americans in detention who have actually applied for asylum, and we're keeping them in a jail-like setting while they await the results of their asylum hearings. And by the way, they're not really entitled to attorneys. Nobody's entitled to an attorney for an immigration case. If these guys had been arrested for a crime, they would have had an attorney. But for immigration, they don't get a court appointment. If they have money, which of course they don't, they could get an attorney. Um, this is uh, we were allowed to go into this um, religious service it's a very sad place this was a a service where they had a Guatemalan minister it was an evangelical service I saw many people crying in there and breaking down and kneeling on the floor these are people that have no idea how long they're going to be there it's different from a prison sentence you know an immigration detention you just know, don't know. I met one guy who had been in immigration detention for seven years in a series of different places because he kept filing his case. And so he was detained all that time. That was the longest period of time. This is without any sort of conviction. You know, this is just applying for asylum. Seven years in jail. Um, this is a picture of the uh, women's unit where uh, two months before... I was visiting there. A young Guatemalan woman had hanged herself on her bunk, um, and it came out. And then two days later, a Gua- she was Guatemalan, and a Guatemalan man, two days after she killed herself, he killed himself in the same way. And it came to light that CCA, Corrections Corporation of America, was not even complying with ICE regulations about suicide provisions, uh, suicide prevention. So that was interesting to me. And they said, well, they... I said, well, we're negotiating with them now to, to come up to the standards, but we're paying these people a lot of money. We pay about $2 billion a year on our detention system, and a lot of that money is going to these private prison uh, 
at CCA, they charge $124 a day for a person by Yolanda, like Yolanda. CCA runs one of the big family detention centers in Texas that are new since the whole uh, the surge of Central Americans coming up. We have a fam- two family detention centers in Texas, and CCA can charge $300 a person because they say, well, we're offering services for all those little children that we have uh, imprisoned there. Um, this is, well, they have a school. They, you know, for what it's worth, they have a school. They have a little playground. <laughs> I have stories about that, too. I interviewed a woman who was there with her little girl. She said the little girl was six. She became very depressed in prison with her mom. And um, ICE calls the units cottages instead of um, prison cells. Uh, a person whose family was descend- was in the uh, Japanese internment visited a guy who wrote, I haven't been out there. He wrote a story about it, said it reminds him of the Japanese internment. You know, these are families basically being interned. But anyway, she said the little girl was sick for a week. She kept taking her to the nurse, kept taking her to the nurse. The nurse kept saying, uh, make her drink some water. Here, take some aspirin. And finally, after six weeks, the little girl started vomiting blood and had to be taken to the hospital. There are many, many, many complaints about poor medical care in those places. But yes, the schools, they have the schools. And if you see the pictures of the cottages, they paint them bright colors. They're like cartoon characters on the wall. So um, Anyway, this is just women in, in Eli, but Eloy offers no services because these are meant to be short-term things. It's not even like a prison where you could take a college class or you know otherwise learn a skill. They just have nothing to do. They're sitting here doing a puzzle. And this is what the cells look like. They did not allow my friend Jay to take a picture of the toilet that's sitting in the middle of the room. So you know you lose your dignity in these prisons. And just one little thing, if you can see, the window is slightly darkened. Um, you can you know it looks brighter than it does in real life. And the guy giving me the tour said, well, we had problems with these women because they have women and men there. Of course, they're in different buildings, and they can walk around outside. He claimed that the women were showing their breasts out the windows at the men and causing such trouble that because of that problem that he alleged had occurred, they decided for all time into eternity to black out all the windows of the women's cells except for the little slot of light at the top. Um, this is one of the good things about Eloy. It is a bunch of different buildings. This is a low-level offender. That's why she, they're color-coded. She's in tan, and that's the lowest level, so she has some ability to walk around. And they walk around to their different, um, uh, the meal time, and they do have outdoor recreation one hour a day. But one woman told me, no, you know, they do lockdowns all the time, and they go back into that little cell. So it's very confining. One uh, person I met in Nogales, Sonora, accepted deportation finally because she just could not stand it. She was about 61, which skews very elderly for the prison population. You know, it's very unusual for somebody of that age to be there. She could not tolerate it. She was always somebody who had been pretty together. She had worked in Phoenix her whole life. Um, But she said that the claustrophobia, she couldn't stand it. She developed hives, all kinds of things. She kept going to the nurse. She kept going to the nurse, said to her, if you come here one more time, I'm putting you in solitary. That's the kind of medical care she got. So she finally said to her lawyer, get me out of here. And, of course, some people argue that the harsh conditions are designed to do exactly that, that people will just give up. Um, So we're okay with time. (laughs) 
Uh, just to get, we can go through this more quickly. The uh, you know the other side of the coin is the deportations. Um, you know, many of the people in detention centers end up getting deported ultimately. And I think this picture was taken in California, but many times in Nogales, Sonora, you can see them. I've seen them myself. You know, walking down back into Nogales, the deportees of the day. Uh, it's interesting that the Mexican government, about six, seven years ago, finally had to set up all kinds of services because the, these border towns in northern Mexico are being flooded with these uh, deportees coming back. And the deportees are coming back. You can see them here. They're like, what am I supposed to do now? You know, they don't have any money. Their families, like Gustavo's family in Phoenix, um, their families are elsewhere. They don't have any money. Um, so they, the, the government does give them a few services. Some of them can get half-price bus tickets back to wherever they originally came from in Mexico. They get free phone calls. They have a little nurse station there. Um, and then there are many charitable groups that run things also. And you've probably all seen this. Everybody been to Nogales at some time or another? The divided city. If you look at photos from 100 years ago, that was just a street. This is uh, one of the charitable organizations, um, Albergue San Juan Bosco. That's a private organization. Well, it's a man and wife that run it, and um, with the help of a lot of other people. And immigrant or detainees, deportees, and current immigrants are allowed to spend three nights there. So this, I visited so many dark and sad places when I was researching this book. This was a really sad place. These were people, you know, their kids were elsewhere. Um, they didn't know what to do. They could only stay there for three days. This couple, sometimes in emergency circumstances, they'll let people stay longer. I met one woman who had broken two legs as she uh, ran through the wilderness near Aravaca, and she was caught and sent back, and she was in excruciating pain. Um, and so she was allowed to stay longer. But most of them, they have to get on the move, and they have to make a decision about what to do really fast. Um, this is a bright spot, uh, the Kino Border Initiative. Has anybody been there? Maybe some of you. That's where the Comedores. Very wonderful cooperation between the Catholic Church and the Arizona side and the Mexican side, it's, it's nominally a Jewish, a Jesuit, <laughs> a Jesuit enterprise, but really it's the nuns who do the work in there, not surprisingly, uh, along with the help of many volunteers. And they, they offer two very hearty meals a day, and they're so kind to people. You know, these are people coming out of detention or, or having just been caught in the desert and sent back over right away. So people who are, you know, really in need of sort of loving care and a good meal. Um, this is what it looks like on the inside. Again, you can see there's not much conversation in there. They're each sort of thinking about their own troubles. Um, this is one man I met. This is another reason for immigration to the United States. You can see he has lost a leg on his journey. He was from Veracruz. Um, the drug cartels got pretty bad there a couple of years ago. There were these mass murders and bodies left around. He was a fisherman, he told me. He really loved being a fisherman. But he thought, i got to get out of here. It's too dangerous. And he had a friend in Tucson, so he planned to come to Tucson. He didn't even have any money for a coyote or anything. He rode the tops of the trains. I'm sure you've seen those pictures, La Bestia. 
So he had gotten all the way up past Mexico City. He was on the train 100 miles south of Nogales in a place called Benjamin Hill, Benjamin Hill. It was at night, and these people are very vulnerable, obviously, riding on the tops of those trains. And he said there were some robbers, and those people were often robbed. You hear these reports. You hear of women being raped. So he said these robbers were chasing him, and he was running. He fell off the train, and the train sliced his leg right off and just kept going. And he's by himself in rural Sonora, bleeding to death, and... Thank God for him. A woman happened to come by and see him. She called the cops. They brought him to the hospital in Hermosillo and saved his life. And he had come up to Nogales because of all things, there's a a place there that makes prostheses. And so he was hoping to get a new leg there. Meantime, he had no clue what to do because now here there he is stranded in Mexico. He has one leg. You know, fishing is a pretty strenuous business. Um, So... It's just, you know, he never even got to the United States. It's just one of the other sorrows that bring people here in the first place. Um, Yep, keep going. Okay. Oh, Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. Here's the border wall you've seen. Here's the border wall you've seen. I like to show this in other parts of the country, and I always say, well, I wish Mr. Trump could see this picture because at least here in Arizona we have a lot of walls. We have a lot of military um, the Tuano Autumn Nation, 75 miles along the border, still the place with the most migrant deaths because it's very remote. This is Border Patrol, does have um, Boar Star, which uh, helps wounded people. This is a picture of a woman I interviewed down in Nogales whose children were taken away from her when she was deported, a son and a daughter, and the state moved to sever her parental rights. But she did get her little girl back in the end, which was sort of one little happy ending. So there, (laughs) that's all my pictures. So uh, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it.